Welcome to Life's a Beach. I'm Bruce Hopkins, better known as Hoppo from Bondi Rescue. Each week I'll be sharing some stories, the good, the bad and everything in between. I'll be chatting to guests about their life experiences and giving our listeners an insight to the challenges we have faced in our lives. We'll share a few jokes and some banter along the way and hopefully our experiences will resonate with you. As the saying goes, while life's a beach, it can also be a bitch. Hey everyone, this week on Life's a Beach, we have been hearing the stories from Ukraine and what Russia has been doing to them. So I thought this week I'd get Holly McKay into the beach shack as she has been on ground in Ukraine and is telling the story of how it is. Holly is an international affairs war journalist with over 14 years of specialised focus on warfare, terrorism and crimes against humanity. Holly has worked on the front lines of several major war zones and covered humanitarian and diplomatic crisis in Iraq, Afghanistan, Pakistan, Iran, Russia, Turkey, and the list just goes on and on. Her globally spanned coverage in the form of thousands of print articles and essays has included exclusive and detailed interviews with numerous captured terrorists, as well as high-ranking government, military, and intelligence officers and leaders from all sides. She has spent considerable time embedded with US and foreign troops, conducted extensive interviews with survivors of torture, sex slavery, refugees, and internally displaced people to communicate the complexities of such catastrophes and war crimes on local populations. Now let's sit back and listen to Holly's story. Now, this week in the Beach Shack, it's uh, a pleasure. It's an Australian-born journalist who has a, a great story and does a fantastic job around the world. Holly McKay, how are you? I'm doing well. Thank you for having me. Now, you've been an international reporter as well, and uh, you specialise pretty much in warfare, terrorism and human rights. So tell us, give us a little bit of a background on your last sort of 15 years of doing this? Yeah, it's definitely been a ride. So I came to the US from Australia. I was studying in 2006. So I was in New York and then sort of randomly got an internship and then uh, sort of was sponsored by by Fox and ended up going to to LA, was based out of there for a long while and back to New York and, and I'm sort of based in DC. But I, I left my sort of stable job just over a year ago and have been focusing on sort of freelancing so I can have that freedom and flexibility. But, but yeah, for most of the past, um, just over a decade really, I've kind of been everywhere from Iraq and Syria, Afghanistan, Yemen, South America, parts of uh, East Africa, um, Asia, sort of. So it's been it's been a fa- fairly uh, interesting ride to, to say the least. And um, it's certainly a wild adventure. And of course, most recently, I, I lived in Afghanistan for most of last year. And then I spent a good portion of this year in Ukraine as well. Now, what's it like going to war zones? You know, you're on your own, you're a woman. It must be quite intimidating. Yeah, I think it is. And and certainly it's a very different dynamic, say, to people that go in with crews where you really, you know, you have a cameraman and producer and team. And, and when you are a writer and you are going in by yourself, it's certainly a lot more – it's a very different dynamic. And I think – 
it has advantages because you can kind of slip under the radar. You can just sort of work with locals. You can take a lot more of a simplistic approach to it. But um, but there are certainly times, and especially you know, most recently in Afghanistan, where I really missed the idea of being able to sort of have that that you know, even if it was just one person, a photographer, whoever it may be, that can constitute having a team, and that will enable you to to share some of the burden, some of the logistics, some of the safety concerns. Whereas when it's just me, it really you know I am my responsibility. But um, you certainly have to take into account a lot of things, and it can be it can be a very lonely path. As rewarding as it is, it, it certainly is. It's a it can be a very lonely job when you are for weeks, months, however long. Um, in very remote areas by yourself and, and you sort of have to just get comfortable with being uncomfortable, I think. Do you have to work on contacts uh, when you go to these places and have backup plans? Absolutely. That is sort of a crucial part of, of what we do. And I rarely, rarely, I say rarely, but <laughs> I've had to foster it sometimes, but generally try to, you know, have a really good Rolodex of, of people sort of lined up before I go, at least, you know, a fixer or someone who can point me in the right direction, you know, someone just to kind of have that, that dialogue with. Otherwise, it's extremely difficult um, to, to sort of just walk into a place. I was grateful with Ukraine because I had worked there previously that I knew some good people there and, you know, being able to, to sort of tap back into to those resources was really, really valuable. I don't know um, if I would have been able to really do my job properly if I had just gone in sort of the heat of the, the invasion and sort of without any prior knowledge, A, of the country and, and of Kiev, but also just sort of having those, those friendships there that really, they're just vital to the work I do. Speaking about Ukraine, it's something that the world has been watching, but I suppose the media just send out certain propaganda and, and, you know, we don't know what we're watching on TV is actually true, but you were on the ground there. Now, were you there when the invasion first started? So I was there from January and then I went, I went, um, I was sort of not sure if it was going to happen. I had some work in Albania that I had to do. So I kind of left a few days before the invasion. And then as soon as the invasion happened, I, I went back and sort of had to figure out, you know, I ended up flying back to Budapest and then ended up going to the, the border in Hungary and then sort of took an epic, uh, you know, 20 something hour journey across the country to get back to Kiev. So, um, it would, that, <laughs> that was an adventure in itself. Certainly would have been easier if I had just stayed, but yeah, I, at that point we just really weren't sure what was going to happen. And I sort of felt like I was there for so long kind of hanging out. So yeah, that's, uh, so I, I sort of ended up kind of back in, I think the invasion started on the 24th. So I was sort of back in within the next sort of 48 hours. And how was that when you went back in? And it was so eerie because it was just this sort of completely new place that I just left and, and you just sort of this immediate drastic transformation and we really didn't know what was going to happen at that point and I was very determined that I was going to be in Kiev and based out of Kiev and obviously a lot of the journalists were in the western city of Lviv which is near Poland and, and certainly far safer but for me it was more just a matter of if I was going to go to Ukraine to, to cover this, I was going to go to Kiev and not sort of try to be in the safer area. And that was that was a personal decision I made. So when I went, it was suddenly going into, you know, you're going into this heat of this war zone where suddenly all the shops are closed and 
and there's checkpoints everywhere and there's sandbags and there's no school and there's no work and it's just this complete life that revolves around war and you're you're hearing constant shelling um, in the distance and and certainly you know when you venture to the front lines that's certainly a very different front line to many of the front lines that I've I've worked in in the past and just an incredibly different dynamic and I think certainly the uncertainty of it is always what what causes that little bit of extra um, pause for thought? When you say the shelling starts, and do you fear for your life or, or do you go into work mode and that sort of goes on the back burner? Yeah, I mean, it really just depends how close that you're hearing it. And sometimes it's hard to tell whether it's incoming or outgoing. Certainly if it's outgoing, you're not really too concerned because then you know that it's the Ukrainians that are firing. But if it's incoming, you know, you, you know that that's the Russians. So that is a little bit nerve wracking. And when you get close to those environments, I think certainly, you know, I was at one point um, on this Irpine Bridge, this bridge that had been blown up. And people were sort of being dragged out of their homes and sort of rescued and taken across this bridge. And, and then, you know, there, there was shelling that was very, very close. And, and certainly in those moments, you, you go into that fight or flight of run, even though you don't necessarily know which direction that you're running to. But, you know, you're just simply trying to run to get to get away from where the closest of that of that sound is. So, it, yeah, it certainly isn't a it's an unusual kind of. Uh, displeasure so to speak but I really think if you do this work it's important not to panic you know I recognize that I have made a decision to put myself in in this situation and it's not unlike uh, civilians who are being rescued that really had no choice um, in the matter you know it's a decision that I made and so it's certainly I think something you have to make peace with to a degree before you enter this uh, situation. Well we see people evacuating and where are they going is is it a mayhem when they were trying to get out of the country yeah i think for the most part you know and this is the really one of the really sad factors i found was that these people are being rescued from these towns and cities but then they don't know where they're going you know you can you can go a little bit further maybe into the city of kiev that seems relatively safer but it's still a war zone um, so that's a really, you know, it's a painful thing because these people have, have just been rescued. Often they don't even have a suitcase. They they may just be lucky enough to have a tiny plastic bag with their belongings in it. And and often, yet yeah, they don't know. They're trying to get hold of relatives in other places. And generally speaking, for the women and children, most of them will try to go west because it's obviously a lot safer and you're going towards, you know, Poland and Slovakia and Hungary and, and sort of friendly countries. So some of them will choose to stay in Ukraine but but remain in the western areas and then others will cross borders and, and, and try to resume life uh, somewhere else. So um, it's, you know, it's really sad. And then obviously men aged 18 to 60 aren't able to leave. So, you know, it's a, it's a sad situation for families and, and for women that really have to carry that burden. And, and for the men too that have to, you know, have no choice but to stay in the war zone um, while they say goodbye to their families. How are the kids dealing with it? I mean, you know, young kids don't understand. I think it's just a deeply... It's just a deeply confusing thing, I think, for a lot of children. And I think each parent has their own way of uh, sort of expressing what's happening. Um, I've certainly talked to a lot of mothers about this. Some will be very honest about the situation. Others will maybe try to gamify it a little bit more, you know, sort of turn it into kind of a video game when you're hearing these missiles and things like that, um, just to kind of take the edge off and, and to 
to sort of not induce any sort of extra sense of fear. And then I think, you know, a lot of children, especially ones that are crossing borders, are being told that they're going to visit other family members or that they're just going on an adventure. So it, it really, it, sort of the older the child becomes when they have a little bit more of an awareness of the situation and what's happening, it's certainly a lot more difficult, I think, than, than even the really young children who, who perhaps haven't sort of comprehended what what is going on. But it's certainly... Um, you know, you, you have to worry so much about that sort of generational trauma and, and the long-lasting impact that war will have on children as they get older. And, and there's so many, different, uh, so many different facets of that. Now, I read too that families were leaving children behind. Did you see any of that? Not really. I mean, I haven't. I haven't. I certainly read about isolated cases of, of mothers, you know, having to, to sort of keep certain children with other families. But, but I think for the most part, there's, there really isn't, um, you know, parents wanting to leave their children behind or no, that no parent would sort of, you know, flee to another country leaving a child. So I think, you know, children are really the priority and often in cases uh, even the mothers will ensure that the child is in a safe place, perhaps with other family members, and then, you know, have their own plans to return um, back to their their hometown or city and to do whatever they can to be part of the uh, Ukrainian fight. There's a lot of families that still have you know, family in Russia. What's the perception of the Russian people on what's happening in Ukraine? Yeah, you know, that's really a, a disappointing sort of thing. And almost every Ukrainian that you'll speak to will say to you, you know, they'll send them pictures of their injuries or that their house being shelled or something to that effect. And then the family members will say, you know, this isn't true. We don't believe you. And so there really is this incredible divide. Um, I think it's hard for us to really wrap our heads around, especially in 2022, when we think, but there's so much information that's accessible. There's the internet, there's social media. Uh, surely, you know, Russians can't be this naive, but I... <laughs> I'm saying a good portion of them still are. A good portion are still only getting their information from that one track of, of state government-fed news outlets. And a lot of the time, social media and things are banned, um, and they're really not sort of, you know, endeavoring to, to try to find things out beyond that. Um, so you really do have this massive chunk of the population that is in denial about what's happening or really believes Putin's line that it's some sort of liberation special military operation. So it, it's just crazy, really. And then you have a sort of a handful of very brave people that are willing to stand up to it in Russia. And I certainly think there's a lot more people that, that very much disagree with what's happening, but yet fear the repercussions of, of speaking out about it so that they stay quiet and, um, you know, and, and I can understand where that's coming from, but also it is up to the Russian people to instill change in their country. We cannot have, you know, this sort of lingering threat in the region that's going to protract for, for many more years, even after the dust has settled in Ukraine. So I think it's, for those Russians that really are aware of what's happening, they have a tremendous responsibility to 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 stand up to their leader and to to try to put a stop to this. Now, all the war zones that you've been to throughout your career, are you surprised how the Ukraine people are standing up to to support their country? You know, they're picking just random people are picking up guns and and they want to fight for their country. Yeah, I think it's extraordinary, and I think it you know it should it it should show to us all. I guess to different degrees, but what 
what people are really capable of. And I think there's just nobody that could have really imagined that this, you know, relatively small country with a relatively sort of ill-equipped military would be, I hate to use the word, but, you know, essentially almost defeating, you know, what was supposed to be the second largest military in the world. Um, I think it's extraordinary. And that really is driven by that civilian effort where civilians are not only signing up to join the territorial defenses or these military wings, but just playing, you know, extraordinary roles in whatever way, shape or form and really refusing uh, any form of surrender. And it, it is absolutely extraordinary. So I think that really does show us what human beings, what countries are capable of. And that's, you know, I think, and I, and I hate drawing these comparisons, but certainly it was very different seeing that to then my experience of living in Afghanistan, where instead of, of sort of fighting and you had the women and children that had been left behind and you had a, just, you know, every evac plane was filled with military age males. And you certainly have to question a lot of the time, you know, how they got onto those planes and to get onto those planes, you really had to trample over a whole bunch of people. And second to that, you know, what, what could have possibly been done differently there that, that, that just didn't happen. And I think there just has to be a willingness. There has to be a mobilization. But with that, there has to be a willingness. And Ukraine has certainly proved just an extraordinary level, uh, really a willingness to, to fight for their country in, in a way that I hadn't really seen to that degree before. And do you think that's angered Russia and surprised Russia that this has happened? Do you think they thought it was going to be a lot easier? Absolutely, yeah. I, I certainly think that they, yeah, absolutely had no idea that Ukraine would, would be as steadfast as it was, that it probably would get the sort of weaponry support from the West that it has. But, you know, and I also think to a large degree, Putin himself is not, or was not really made aware of the the holes in his own military or the weakness or the, the really the, the inability to, to really understand what they were getting into. And I think that has a large part to, he has such a small circle of people around him. Um, and I think those advisors around him who may have had a better idea of, of what was happening were simply afraid to tell him the reality, both before this uh, conflict happened and then sort of during it. So um, I think right there it sort of shows you the ramifications of a leader that's surrounded by yes men and doesn't have a, a, a picture that's sort of drawn from reality of what uh, what is happening. So I certainly think it's a huge embarrassment for him on many, many levels. This sort of great red army is not so great after all. That's what we're sort of seeing here in Australia through the media, that Russia just haven't performed as what the rest of the world thought they would in war. Absolutely. I mean, it's it's sort of incredible, really, um, just, I guess, the amount of stock that was put into the Russian military and, and the amount of equipment everybody thought they had and the training, and they really you know, went on this big campaign of, of talking about how much they'd revolutionized their armed forces since 2008. But, you know, I think sadly, too, in this particular circumstance, at least in the beginning, you saw a lot of conscripts that were sent uh, to Ukraine with not really any knowledge of, of that sort of skillful fighting, but not really knowledge of the terrain or, or what the objective, I guess, was. I think the initial thought really was that, you know, Kiev was going to fall within 48 hours, and of course that didn't happen. Um, so you're sort of left with these sort of mammoth holes that the military were unable to fill. And, and it's very sad as well when you look at the number of Russians that have died, and especially when you look at the number of 
you know, the conscripts, these young men that, that really didn't have any decision in, in being part of this, you know, that have lost their lives and, and there are sort of many, many thousand of them and, and it's, uh, it just shows you the disregard that Putin has even for his own people and that is, um, you know, that should be in itself a, a really strong rallying cry that, that Russian people need to, to bring to light. I mean, the military casualties, is, we get mixed messages here in Australia. One minute, it's, it's a certain number, then another number. Do you have a, an idea on the, the numbers of casualties? I, I think it's impossible to have a completely accurate consensus just because there isn't really a sort of a tallying on the ground. And you have to keep in mind, too, that Ukraine will you know, use this for their own you know, propaganda agenda. So therefore, the numbers are likely inflated. But last count, and mind you, I haven't sort of looked at it for the last couple of days, but last count that I'd sort of seen that, that seemed to look like it was potentially accurate was kind of putting it at around sort of 13 to, to 15,000 soldiers dead um, on the Russian side. And then I think several thousand uh, on the Ukrainian side too, but, but Kiev is keeping that very quiet. Obviously, they don't want to sort of destroy morale and things. So th- those numbers are also a little bit hard to gauge. Now, we're talking about Russia and their forces and, and not performing as well as what we all thought. How organises the Ukraine forces on the other side? So, I mean, again, you know, they've really had to come together in a, in a very, very hasty way. Um, I think you have sort of three tracks with the Ukrainians. You have their official military, then you have the territorial defences, which are part of the military, but they're civilians. So... They usually sort of support, they're not necessarily super trained, but, you know, they can shoot, they can bring their guns, they can, you know, offer, um, do patrols and things like that, so that, therefore, the, the trained military can focus on the, the frontline fight. And then the third wing is you have volunteers, and generally these volunteers are, they're not being paid, but they're usually retired military, they usually have some military experience, I know a lot of uh, friends of mine that are part of the volunteers that were former Ukrainian special forces that have just sort of come back on their own own terms and uh, without money to, to fight. So you have these three different tracks, and I know that there is efforts to to try to coordinate those three different lanes um, so that fighting can be as effective as possible. So uh, granted, you know, we've got to remember Ukrainian military is still very new. Um, it really, it wasn't until the Maiden Revolution of 2014 that they even had a military once Viktor Yushchenko was ousted. And, of course, he was a pro-Putin person, so it was in their interest not to have a military. I think I believe the number was about 6,000 sort of soldiers, something really incredible like that. And so after that, you had to have this massive overhaul, and Crimea was, of course, annexed, and then the, the fighting in the eastern Donbass region began. So that's when Ukraine, under a sort of a democratic leadership, started to put a military together. And, and so it's still in very much, you know, think of things in, in its infancy, um, but, you know, you're seeing an incredible just sort of will and, and zest to fight. And um, I certainly think, you know, there are big organizational challenges, but considering, um, I guess, the depth of what they've been facing and how quickly that came upon them, I think, Ukrainians are doing an extraordinary job to overcome those hurdles. Did you see the Russian convoy at all? Was it getting close when you were there? I, I didn't see it. And, and uh, you know, that, that yeah, that, that to me, I, I certainly when I would speak to soldiers and things at checkpoints, they would point out exactly, you know, the distance. And sometimes it, it was very close, but I didn't sort of see it myself. And, 
And when I would talk to Ukrainian officials about it, they sort of said, well, there's lots of convoys. So, yeah, I think that, again, it's, I, I didn't see with my own eyes, so I'm sort of hesitant to um, necessarily elaborate on that too much. But um, certainly satellite images show that there was this very extensive convoy of Russian tanks. But that, to me, it just seems like a very conventional, uh, strange way to, to fight a war when all that really would take is to hit the front and the back and then you're kind of screwed in the middle. So, um, and again, not to say that Russians didn't do something as stupid as that. They probably likely did, but I sort of question the exact sort of objective and, and, and depth and uh, thing, you know, about that a lot. And then suddenly it, it sort of dispersed. So I, because I didn't see it with my own eyes, I, I don't, I know as much as you really on that front because um, I didn't, you know, I didn't see it and I I just questioned some of the sort of modalities around it because I think that there was a lot of convoys and I don't necessarily know that there was one in particular that was just kind of sitting there for a week. I can't imagine that, you know, Ukraine would just let it sit there for a week and not um, sort of take some sort of action upon that. Yeah, the, the reason I say that was the all the media we were getting here in Australia was just showing as if it was all Russian convoys and they were just about to take over. And and as you're saying, it might the, what pictures we were seeing may not even have been the Russians at all. Mm. And, you know, I just, I'll give you one example. So when I was going back in to Kiev from, um, from the Hungary border and, you know, friends of mine in the U.S. and friends of mine, you know, within the military and uh, intelligence communities were like, no, 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 you're not going to be able to get in. It's completely surrounded. It's besieged, you know, and that was certainly what I was reading in addition to, to sort of being told this by people. And then when I talked to the Ukrainian driver, this wonderful girl that came to pick me up, and I said, are you sure that we're going to be able to get into Kiev? And she says, yeah, yeah, I've been coming back and forth, you know, across the country for the last few days. She's like, don't worry, we're going through back villages. There's a way. And I was like, okay, you know, people say, no, 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 you can't get in. And I said, well, you know, this, this girl who lives there is driving me, says that I can. So I'm going to take her word for it because she's here. And, you know, as it, as it, you know, was proven, it, you could easily, not easily, but, but getting in and out was not, you know, as we've seen now, a lot of people doing it. So, you know, right off the bat, that information that was being sort of disseminated from many levels was just was just not correct. And I'm not entirely sure where it came from, because I think Ukrainians themselves, you know, they weren't necessarily perpetuating that. So that was that was sort of coming from outside. And again, it can show you how outsiders can shift a narrative. You mentioned about the you know, a person who said you can get through. And you're in the war zones. How do you trust people? Is it is it an instinct that you get, or because you could easily make the wrong decision? Yeah, Hopper, I am the worst person for a PSA stranger <laughs> danger. Pretty much, you know, you have to ask the right questions. And for me, you know, it's not generally it's not completely out of the blue. I'm not plucking somebody off Facebook and um, you know hiring them to do something. You know, this particular case, it was a referral from a friend of a friend. So. Um, you know, I, I had no reason not to trust, but but certainly, again, it's one of the it's one of the challenges of being alone um, as a writer in a war zone, and it's certainly it's always nicer and a lot more comforting on the odd occasions that I can work with a photographer or somebody else because at least you know there's that safety in in numbers. But um, yeah, again, it's it's part of the risks that I have to take to do the job. Um, 
And it just is what it is. Well, you you take a lot of risks and um, also you're on your own, as you said. How do you deal with your mental health? Does it affect you at all? And you're seeing some of the probably worse situations that humans can see. Yeah, and it, it does. It certainly does. And I think, you know, something I've tried to talk about a lot more, I used to be very sort of stoic about it and and have this sort of attitude of like just, you know, you chose to be here, you have to suck this up. And, and, and I, I try to be a little bit more open. I think for me, I think there's a lot of guilt that comes with feeling bad about a situation because I know my life is not theirs. You know, when you see these tragedies and you see these horrors and, and you sort of bear witness uh, you know, you, you. I try to take away, you know, the fact that that you know, I, I'm I'm healthy. I have two passports. I can go to these incredibly beautiful and safe countries. I can choose when to leave. Um, so, uh, sort of f- falling into this the trap of, of of feeling, you know, bad about what I see I, is something that I've actually struggled with a guilt complex about, but I've, I've sort of learned that it's okay to process a lot of those things and it's okay to, it's okay to feel guilty. It's okay to take time out. It's okay to, you know, be very upset or very angry about the things that we see. And I, I, I do to varying degrees, um, you know, try to, to sort of talk to people and, and maintain that level of health because that's really, that's all we have. But it, but it certainly does take a toll on, on you. And I think because I have been doing it for so long, it doesn't become easier. The more you do it, I think some people seem to, you know, will think that there's, that the more you do it, the more used to it you get. And, and, but it doesn't, I think it really does compound. And, and there are certain times when you can feel very overwhelmed, I think, by just the, the level of sadness that really happens everywhere. And it's not just you know, one place. And it's often not a linear thing. Sometimes the things can sort of come back to you weeks after it, or, um, you know, you'll think about something a a month later and, and it, you know, can really affect you. And it's not always, um, sort of an immediate response to something. So yeah, it, it is, it is a, a, um, a side effect of the job. Absolutely. Now you are important. You're there to tell a story to all of us around the world. Is it hard, though, not to spend more time to help people and take more things on? Yeah, it really is. It really, really is. And, and I think people, they, they see you as this sort of voice to the outside world for them. And, you know, especially with Afghanistan, you know, I just every day and, and still now flooded with people just like, can you get me out? Can you get me here? I need to go here. You know, people would send me messages on LinkedIn and WhatsApp. So, you know, people would pass out my number on WhatsApp and, and I would just be bombarded with get me out of here sort of requests. And I think I just had to, you know, I had to really take a pause and, and be like, I, I cannot take this on. I'm absolutely, my job is to, to tell the story and, and, and hopefully, you know, in many cases you can use that story to aid your case or to, to reach out to an organization and say, this is what's happening to me, but I can't take on that burden of, of then trying to help people get out on, on top of what I'm trying to do. And, and sometimes it takes a little bit to get there, but, but I had to, you know, you have to put up boundaries, otherwise you will drown. So 
for me, that's always a really hard boundary to put up because people are hurting and they, they need help and, and people are really grasping at straws. But at the same time, there are people that are designated solely to doing that. There are organizations that are dedicated to assisting in that way. And, and that is not you know what, how I can assist you. So I can point you in the right direction to some of those places, but I can't be the one that sort of can save you from the, the, the water, so to speak. So it, it is hard, but, but you have to... You have to, to, to be vocal about that. You can't, and the worst thing you can really do is say, yes, 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 I'll help you and then not help because especially in these countries, you know, that, that promise is, is, um, is as good as gold. And if you violate that, then you're really in violating somebody's personal dignity. So never make a promise that you cannot, um, keep. So I think that's also an important thing to remember. It must be so tough because I know when I'm doing a rescue paddle out the person's face they're about they think they're about to drown they're about to die and we pick them up it'd be like me just saying oh sorry I I can't do anything and they actually drown you know is it something it'd be so hard to to turn away from people but as you've explained there's no other way of doing it Mm. and I have to remember my job is not to be the lifeguard my job is to tell the story of the rescue or to explain why that person needs to be rescued. So it's just, you know, I have to remember that that is a different function and that if somebody needed that sort of assistance, then I have to point them to to the, the lifeguard or the organization that sort of takes care of that because it's just not, yeah, it's not, it's not where I can help you. And it is tough. It is absolutely tough. Now, Bombings of maternity hospitals and, and, and civilian areas, is that now, have you seen that the Ukraine people just despise of, of Russia? Absolutely. I think people are just heartbroken. There is very little sympathy there for Russia and, and what it's doing. And, and I spent a lot of time also in Syria where the Russians were bombing, and this was just a very familiar tactic. This is what they did. They bombed hospitals. They double-tapped hospitals. So you would hit a hospital and then wait for all the rescue workers to rush to that area, and then they would come back and bomb it again so the rescue workers would be killed. I mean, it just, it's these things that were hideous. Um, so many hospitals were built under the ground, and yet they would still, you know, end up getting um, thrashed by Russian fighters. And it just, it's an incredibly painful thing to, to wrap your head around how a country can possibly be doing this. But they, but they are, and they do, and they know exactly what they're doing. Um, because you can see with a lot of the propaganda, especially in Mariupol, they would try to, in advance, justify what they were doing by saying, you know, this area is where soldiers are being treated. Um, so they would use that as in, as justification for it being military infrastructure, even though it was a, you know, it was a civilian hospital. Um, so it, it just is, it's really hard to, to wrap your head around. And I think at this point, I don't know, you know, how that relationship between Russia and Ukraine is really ever going to mend. So do you think they will come to a ceasefire or it's just too far gone now? The damage is, is done. No, I think definitely a ceasefire is not too far gone. I think that is the, that is the sort of the foundation of ending this war. And you can't, you can't begin to end a war or negotiate terms for a Russian exit or how to, to facilitate that without a ceasefire. So definitely a ceasefire needs to come first. And then that needs to sort of be the priority, I believe, with the negotiations. Um, you can't, 
you can't sort of facilitate who can go where and what will happen when people are still being killed en masse. So that is that is something that Ukraine and Russia, I think, will have to to come to some sort of agreement so that the peace process can move forward. Do you think the Western world are doing enough or they're staying out of it because obviously they don't want to start a World War Three? I think, I mean, it's really hard. I, I can see this from multiple schools of thought here. I can certainly see... Um, you know, and for Ukraine, it's it's so hard. And, you know, they've been so desperate to close the skies. They have billboards all over Kiev, you know, begging for it. And it's really hard to to kind of say to them, especially when children and, and innocent people are being killed, NATO is not going to do that. And that is because they don't want to risk ex- escalation. And, and really the fact of the matter is, and what stops them from doing it here compared to other places where no-fly zones have been imposed is that you're dealing with a nuclear power and you're obviously dealing with a very crazy leader and there is certainly a lot of a lot of murkiness around you know how far that Putin is willing to go so um, that is really the deciding factor here and it's certainly hard to to sort of say that to Ukrainians when they're in the middle of such war and, and such pain but I say and I but I also see, the concerns with, um, you know, the sort of the chaos. And it's not just about implementing the the no-fly zone, is that you have to enforce it. And that requires sending troops to the ground, NATO troops. That requires putting a lot of, um, you know, a lot more men and women in harm's way, um, shooting down jets. You know, there's a, there's a lot to it. It is an act of war. Um, and I don't know that, um, A, it's is super necessary right now or B, that the, the reward for that would outweigh any sort of future risks. So, I think it's just, you know, it's a sad reality and that is what comes with dealing with with a nuclear power. And I think what we will see is that many countries are going to look at this and, and, you know, want to procure their own stockpiles going forward because that really is, you know, really gives you a leg up and and gives you certain levels of defense. If something like this was to ever happen, then then, uh, if you were to not be a nuclear power. So I think that is going to be another huge geopolitical issue that, the world will be grappling with after this. Well, you know, he is a, a crazy Russian president. That do you think he'll just take Ukraine, or do you think it'll continue and you know into other countries? Yeah, I think there was an initial concern about that, but I think it's certainly proven Putin does not have anywhere near the skill, power, expertise to to do that right now. I think he's proven himself incredibly weak. And I think NATO would just obliterate, um, you know, the Russian military in, in five seconds. So I don't, I don't see that being in an option for him right now. And uh, as you said that, it's, it, there's always talk too of a chemical invasion. You see, don't think that would be a possibility either? It certainly is a possibility, and we've certainly seen rhetoric leading to that possibility. But, you know, again, that would prompt... You know, even countries that are standing by or remaining neutral, countries like China and India and and, um, the UAE and other countries that have taken a fairly neutral stance, that would really force them to, I think, oppose Russia and and completely isolate it on the world stage, which is not something I think that it wants, you know, if it does venture down that road. But again, you just never know because you are dealing with a very uh, desperate and uh, questionable man. And we don't really know his own health. We don't understand, you know, what is going on with him physically or mentally. So, um, you know, it's certainly not implausible, but I think that would be just a huge, um, a huge blow to to them on the world stage. So, um, I... But, you know, again, I, 
I also view it as um, we tend to focus so much on chemical warfare because it is banned, but oftentimes it's not, <laughs> you know, you pick or choose your poison. Is it going to be a phosphorus or is it going to be a bomb full of nails and shrapnel that will, you know, you'll get a bomb that burns you or a bomb that just cuts you in half. So, you know, pick or choose the poison here. And I think we tend to focus on chemical weapons so much that we forget that these regular bombs, you know, they also kill you and do a huge amount of damage. Yeah, I I, I think that it's for some reason, you know, we're so focused on that. But at the end of the day, you know, it's terrible. But is it any more terrible than, than a barrel bomb? Now, something that I read that I'm very interested in, that you've interviewed numerous captured terrorists throughout your career, and that's something that fascinates me on on how these people think. Now, do they all think different or or you found it's a consistent sort of pattern? Yeah, I think that it is it is um it's very different. It differs a lot by country, by place, by sort of affiliation with whatever organization that they may be with. Generally, you know, what I found and and I wrote about this in my last book, Only Cry for the Living is is then at that, that point I was um, living in Iraq and Syria and interviewing ISIS terrorists in those areas. And what, what I found to be very interesting was that a lot of the time it wasn't religion that was necessarily the motivating factor for them joining, um, which we tend to think of these groups as extremist, and, and certainly they are. But I always found that religion was sort of just a tag on, but oftentimes the, their reasons for joining were because they felt uh, repressed or, or uh, persecuted by the government um, that was supposed to be protecting them, like in the case of in Baghdad with a very Shia government, Sunnis felt very isolated. Um, you also had some that were just, you know, they were living somewhere, they're poor people, and suddenly this group comes in and takes over and says, well, you know, you have to join us if you're going to keep your land. And so it really then becomes this survival uh, mechanism. So I think there are just so many other factors that come into it that aren't necessarily driven, you know, immediately by uh, an extreme religion ideology. And I think, I think certainly when they join these groups, often that does become become perpetuated and they're going to you know they're part of these circles that are, are very dangerous in their ideology but i i don't always think that they are the leading factor going into it i think they just tend to often be kind of the um the convenient uh, excuse but but in contrast to that often when you see terrorist attacks on home soil or in you know western places such as france or spain or you know, in the United States, I think a lot of that, and it's often homegrown terrorism, a lot of that stems from, from this extreme ideology and being part of maybe online groups and or being indoctrinated at a, at a mosque or whatever it may be. So I think the ideology in, in a lot of the lone wolf attacks, um, you know, comes from a different place to the people that are often joining these organizations in their home turf. Now, you mentioned your book. So where can people get that and, and uh, also like follow you and, and follow the stories that you've been putting out? So I think, I believe um, you can get the book. It should be available on Amazon and also in Australia. Um, D'Angelo Publications, that's uh, D-I Publications. And then I believe, uh, I think it's um, because Jocko was a co-publisher of the book as well. So I think it's getsome.com.au. You can also buy the book there in Australia as well. And you can follow me on Twitter and Instagram, at Holly McKay, H-O-L-L-I-E, at Holly S. McKay, I should say. So H-O-L-L-I-E-S-M-C-K-A-Y, and 
I try to sort of post my stories and, and give regular updates and things on uh, on that. But it's it's great, and uh, I could probably go on and on and on with uh, yeah talking about all these stories. It's it's really fascinating, and uh, I'm sure the listeners will, will love it as well. Now. I'll do a little segment, five fun facts at the end of the interview. So I'm going to throw five questions at you. You can answer them however you want. And uh, we'll see how we go and uh, what we get out of it. Uh, The first one is, tell me about a time when you failed and what you learned from it. Oh, I'm one of those people who thinks I fail all the time and everything every day. (laughs) Um, I, I had a really... You know, even with what we're talking about before, when I left uh, Kiev to go to Albania and then the invasion happened and I had to figure out to get back. And I really, I was a mess when that happened because I felt as though I'd failed. I just, I was so upset. I I felt I should never have gone. Um, I should never have left. And now I had to sort of go through this huge morale to get back. And I was just sort of crying and I just... I was a really a big mess because I just I felt very disappointed in just myself. You know. So it wasn't. I think what it required was a mental shift on my behalf. So it wasn't the a sort of big failure that I, I saw it in the beginning. And once I was able to successfully get back and and see it as as something that was a success, um, as opposed to something that I had completely screwed up. What ridiculous thing has someone tricked you into doing or believing? Ah. Uh, I'd like to think nothing. <laughs> um, I don't know. Does a blackjack table in Vegas count when you you spend a night losing and losing and keep thinking, oh, I'm going to win the next one and you lose and someone finally has to drag you away and be like, all right, that's enough. You know, you've wasted several days of, of work now. Um, so anyway, usually I do pretty good, but you know, certainly last time was a failure. <laughs> If you could know the absolute and total truth to a question, what question would you ask? I mean, I guess it's generic, but it is the one that you deal with so much in this work, and that is, you know, what happens when you die? I think that's always the the question we all have as human beings because it's the one thing that nobody can ever tell us with absolute certainty, and, and you certainly have a lot of experiences with death in this work where... Yeah, it just it raises a lot of questions, and and you, it's the definitive thing. I think we a lot of us would love to know that that we'll never know until we experience it. You can have one secret video or audio feed from anywhere in the world. Where do you put it? Hmm. I think it would have to be something of value to my work to the world, and so. You know, let's put it in a boardroom in Beijing or something, you know, with the president, find out what's going on, what he's talking about, what he's saying, what he's planning. (laughs) (laughs) Now, the last question, what do you miss most about Australia? Oh, I miss so much. Well, my family, obviously, but... I really miss the beaches in Australia. I think, um, you know, I miss, I miss the, the, su- the summers, the sunshine. They're sort of, I'm one of those crazy people who loves humidity. And I really miss that. And it's, you know, it's funny because I was just talking to a friend about this. I have been in freezing, absolute below freezing temperatures since October, beginning of October of last year. So I was in Afghanistan when it got cold and I was traveling to a lot of the snowy places left there at the end of the year, was in New York, and then I was in Idaho for Christmas, New Year, and then moved to Washington, D.C., 
then went to Ukraine and sort of all over Europe. I'm going back to Europe tomorrow. Again, it'll be cold. And it's been absolutely freezing in DC this week since I've been back. And I just said to a friend, like, I, I have not had any vitamin D. I have not taken off a heavy full coat and beanie and snow boots for more than six months. Like, this cannot be good, especially because I am such a, a warm weather summer baby. So I think next trip's going to have to be um, after I get back from Europe. I'm, I think I'm heading to Mexico or something just to <laughs> sit on the beach because, yeah, I miss, I miss the beach and the warm weather. Well, Holly, it's been um, great talking to you. Uh, your story is amazing, and I'm sure a lot of listeners will uh, jump on and follow you and, and, and read about all your stories, and uh, I really appreciate uh, your time. I really appreciate coming on. Thanks for having me, and it's always nice to hear a familiar accent. <laughs> now let's go to beach banner but this week in the beach shack we've got jesse pollock how are you mate hey hop how are you mate good mate now you're renowned for a lot of uh, over the years going around the world and also australia chasing big waves and mate tell us a bit about that how did you one start in wanting to do big waves and let us know what the biggest waves and, and probably the best venue that you've ever been to. Mate, um, just growing up in Maroubra, all the uh, older guys, you know, always charged the biggest waves. And, you know, at the time, a few of the boys were, you know, known as the best big wave surfers in the world. So, yeah, where, where I grew up, it was either you surf, you play footy, or you get yourself in trouble. So, <laughs> yeah, it's only three things to pick from. <laughs> So, mate, tell us a bit about uh, the big wave areas. I know a lot of Maroubra guys do go to ours, so tell us a bit about that. It's quite dangerous, not a lot of room for error over there. Yeah, like um, it's it, the reason a lot of people from Maroubra go there and surf it is because it's so close to home. It's, it's just on the other side of Botany Bay. So literally for, for us guys in Maroubra, it's most probably quicker for us to go and surf ours than it is to go over and surf Bondi. And at the same time, as much as it is, it's pound for pound the heaviest wave in the world. But at the same time, if you get a good one out there, it's most probably pound for pound the best barrel in the world also. And you can get washed. In, for people that don't know, uh, trying to explain it is, you're pretty close to the rocks. You're surfing in front of a, a cliff, really. Yeah, well, why, why it's such a heavy wave? It comes from such deep water. Like you think of it, you've got the, the ships that come into Botany Bay. Like the water is so deep there. And then it just hits this shallow shelf. And then pretty much right there is a cliff face. So that's why the wave's so heavy because it comes out of deep water straight into shallow water. And you've had a, a fair few uh, wipeouts there, mate? Yeah, man, I've um, I've had my fair share of wipeouts out there. I was actually surfing it the other day, and um, a few of the boys were saying we're going looking for lobsters, but there's been that many wipeouts out there that there's no more lobsters left, mate. They're just crabs these days. <laughs> yeah, but uh, yeah, I've um, I've had my fair share. I've I've done my knee out there. I've broken my back out there, and pretty much every time you surf the place, you cut yourself up. Mate, now, what about around the world? Is there anything that stands out, big wave riding for you? You've surfed a, a fair few locations. Um, mate, look, I've, I've surfed uh, Chopu in Tahiti. I've been to Hawaii. I've surfed, you know, Pipeline, Phantoms, Sunset. 
But um, look, for me, the waves that most probably stand out the most for me is surfing hours in Botany Bay because I get to I get to share the experience with my friends. Like when you're surfing these waves overseas, it don't get me wrong, it's unbelievable, but you're not really surfing it with anyone close to you. You're surfing it with other people. So, you know, I love I love the banter. Like if I'm in the surf, like in the surf, I love watching my friends get good waves. I love my friends watching me get good waves. Where when you're doing that overseas, no one really knows what's going on unless you know you get a really good one and someone films it. Yeah, and, and these days it's probably lucky there are so many people filming when there's big waves. You've got drones, you've got people out on boats and jet skis, and the vantage points are a lot better. And, and ours, you can get some really good shots from vantage points. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Like I, even to say from when I was, you know, traveling the world surfing big waves, it's it's a lot different now. Like, you know, people have got their iPhones, you've got the drones, like this never happened. The only people that would be there filming would be the actual filmers and they're using like big, huge cameras. So, you know, it was nothing like, like it is today. You know, these, these big cameras were always stuffing up. You know, if the jet ski wasn't in the right spot, you know, you're not getting the shot where now pretty much, you know, they don't miss anything. Yeah. And back then it was a lot of the uh, photography all, you had to wait to see it because it'd go into the surf mags. But now you, you, you nearly see it live. Well, that's it. Back in the day, you got your photographers who, you know, are paying thousands upon thousands of dollars to travel around the world. They don't want anyone to see the photo because the only way they're making money is selling it to the magazines. Where nowadays, because of social media, there isn't even really any more surfing magazines. Mm. So you're getting a, a photo surfing like I had it the other day. You're out surfing. By the time you get in to the beach, you have a look on your phone and you're already tagged in in photos that you caught an hour ago. It's it's crazy. Mate, uh, who's your favourite person to surf with in, in big waves? Have you got a favourite? To tell you the truth, I don't really have a favourite. I just like, I like surfing with all my mates. You know, we're all, you know, cheering each other when we get good waves. It's just, it's a lot different to when, you, you know, you're surfing perfect waves all around the world with, you know, professionals that, that do it every day and then, you know, you're out with your mates that work nine to five, six days a week. It's it's a way better feeling just, just doing it with all your mates. And you do have a lot of jet skis out there now, so the safety side of thing is a, a bit better now than what they used to be? Oh, yeah, definitely. And I think with, um, say, like surfing all of these big waves now and when, you know, the, you see these big wave surfers, it's totally, it's nearly a totally different sport to what it was 15 years ago because back then there was no safety. You know, you didn't, you didn't have the guys pedaling the size of waves that they are now. Like there was no, you know, buoyancy vest. There was none, none of this. So it's, yeah, it's like, it's nearly a, a totally different sport. Cause you could say, oh, back in the day, the, the big wave surfers had more, more, how would you say it? balls than what the big wave surfers have now but then you you flip it around and you go well 15 years ago they weren't paddling 50 foot jaws that would have you know been you people would have said oh it's, it's not possible but you know there's yeah there's different things but this only reason they're paddling 50 foot jaws now is because they've got water safety they've got buoyancy vests and, you know, there's so much more technology to prove that they can do it 
than there was 15 years ago. Do you think that now a lot of people are getting out to these breaks like ours and, and, and every, everywhere else like Portugal with Nazare and that are out of their league because they can get there now? One million percent, one million percent, you know, like because you've got these jet skis and everything, you don't, you're going and surfing these waves, you know, like say Nazare or whatever, like these waves are 80 foot, like getting to 100 foot and you're getting out there without even getting your hair wet because you're going out on a jet ski and anyone can do it. All you've got to do is have a jet ski at the boat ramp and get on it and go out there. There's no one stopping you from when, you know, back in the day when I would be surfing big waves, it was, there was no real jet ski assist and you had to get yourself out the back, no buoyancy vest. So, you know, like you'd be now that when you're thinking like, look, surfing jaws and that, it's a different story. Like the guys that do that, that's crazy. But you know, like just say like our local area now where it's really big, you get wedding cake when it's like 20 foot. You never used to see anyone paddle that back in the day, but every, any given swell now there's 30 guys out there because They've all got buoyancy vests on. There's jet skis in the channel. Like you don't really look, you still have that risk that you can die, but it's nowhere near as big as it was 10 years ago. Yeah. Well, mate, uh, thanks for stopping into the beach shack and telling your story. It's uh, something that everyone uh, likes listening to big wave riding. Yeah, mate. It's, um, it's an unreal sport. Now it's time to have a listen to the fans in the mailbag. This letter in the mailbag is from Richard and he's from London. The question is, have you ever thought about coming over and doing a tour through Europe and maybe doing live your podcast? Well, Richard, uh, it's something I have been thinking about. I've been thinking about whether to do a a speaking tour where we talk about, you know, lifeguards, water safety, also looking at recording some live podcasts. Uh, with COVID the last two years, it's been pretty difficult to travel anywhere, but it is in the uh, pipeline. We're uh, thinking about what we can do and what people would be interested in. So send in uh, your messages and letters and what you would like, uh, and we can uh, try and accommodate. But I think... Uh, Coming over to London and uh, doing a couple of trips through Ireland and, and, and other parts of Europe, I think would be uh, really good. And why not record uh, the podcast as we're going on uh, the tour? Anyway, thanks, Richard, for your letter and uh, keep them coming. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Remember to subscribe to Life's a Beach wherever you get your podcasts and hit us up with questions, comments, or follow us on our social media channels, which you can find in our show notes. That's it for today, Beach fans. Stay safe and swim between the flags.